Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners, Dr. Sam Williams here and welcome to this hotly anticipated episode on splenomegaly. I'm pretty sure this is one of the most hated scenarios for Pacers so I'm really delighted to bring it to you. I got along another brilliant returning guest, Dr. Susie Morton, consultant haematologist who you may remember from the polycythemia episode. One thing that I recommend before listening, if you can, is to look through the life cycle of a lymphocyte. I just think it would be really helpful to process the content from this episode rather than going in cold but now to pay homage to the donation heroes on the buy me a coffee page firstly to ben thank you for your kind words and donation thank you to Haley and to man thank you to alice listening on her commutes through the mersey tunnel and thank you to james for your kind donation as well but i absolutely loved jake's message who found himself humming the theme tune on the morning of his exam that's absolutely everything i want to hear and we've got everything crossed for your results as well jake and thank you to everyone who has donated but for now on with the show with dr susie morton Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. My name's Dr. Sam Williams, and for regular listeners, they will know that I think long and hard about who I invite on the show to discuss each specific topic. And this episode is no different. I thought long and hard about who might be best to provide an insight into assessing and managing patients with splenomegaly. Maybe I should pick an acute medical consultant skilled at rapidly examining patients and eliciting clinical signs. Should I pick an infectious disease specialist? and let them preach to us about how important it is to send thick and thin malaria films? Or do I pick a loved and cherished friend of the podcast who is as much of a Taylor Swift fan as I am? There was only one choice. It's consultant haematologist, Dr. Susie Morton. Susie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. And Susie, I've invited you back. And as we was just saying before we hit record, between us, we think this is probably one of the harder, if not the hardest topic to tackle in paces and i said that i'm allowed to say that because this came up in my very first unsuccessful paces attempt but this really is a huge potential banana skin and this is why it's so important for our listeners to get this absolutely right isn't it 
Absolutely, I agree. I mean, the difficulty with splenomegaly is there are so many different things that can cause it and you kind of have to have them all in your mind as you approach the patient, even aside from the fact that it's quite difficult to feel beans clinically and that you don't come across them um, every day. And I think it would be remiss of me not to admit that as a haematologist, it's one of my least favourite things to see in clinic, um, just because actually it's it can be really difficult to get to the bottom of and, and find out exactly what's going on um, in the patient. So if it's any consolation to the listeners, I share your pain. <laughs> and, uh, and Susie, one thing I wanted to ask as well is, as a, a jobbing haematologist, how often do you actually come across pa- patients with splenomegaly in your own clinical practice? Yeah, it's it's really reasonably common, actually. So probably, I don't know, one in 10 referrals that we get will be a big spleen. And I know we're going to talk a bit more about, you know, how people present and, and how they come uh, to be with us. But the, the difficulty often with splenomegaly is it's seen incidentally on imaging and actually what constitutes a big spleen. So they will probably talk a little bit about um, definitions and things, but yeah, the, the ones on the borderline can be even more difficult to manage because how far do you investigate them if, if your first round or second round of investigations haven't yielded anything of, of particular note? Yeah, absolutely. There is a, a huge investigative rabbit hole you could you could dive down in your discussion with the examiners. But for now, I think it's only right. Let's get into our conversation on splenomegaly. So Susie, just starting off, I'm wondering, it, it's got a pretty straightforward definition, but what's your definition of splenomegaly? Yeah, so you're quite right. A, a big spleen will be defined as anything more than 13 centimetres on imaging, but also clinically, if you can feel the spleen, it's too big, which is actually quite a useful clinical parameter because, as we say, a lot of these patients are picked up on imaging and the 13 centimetres does not allow for your four foot ten woman versus your six foot six man and certainly um i have had patients who are very very tall men and you think well actually how significant is this 14 or 15 centimeter spleen so it has to be taken into into consideration and there are no good rules or or guidelines without wanting to enter too much detail too soon you can think about things like well what's the impact of the big spleen so for example if someone's got a slightly low platelet count and you think that's because they've got a big spleen then that big spleen must be pathological if you see what I mean a, you know a physiological big spleen or physiological normal for that person size spleen should not cause things like a low platelet count so as with all of medicine you're having to take lots of different things into consideration but the bottom line is 13 centimeters or something that you can feel clinically and we've been discussing the potential vignettes that might be presented to our listeners and overwhelmingly my feeling is this is the type of thing which comes up in an abdominal examination station. It, it's possible it could come up in the clinical consultation station, but I think the the biggest anxiety and apprehension from a lot of people I've met or paces, sitters, prospective paces, sitters, is the abdominal examination station. Before we dive into the uh, actual examination process, you mentioned about trying to think about the the function of the spleen and think about why the spleen would be enlarged for for any given reason and i think this is really important because it, it's better than just rote learning a list of diagnoses it cements it more in the mind of in the mind of us all to understand the reasons why the spleen is enlarged and and then categorize it that way so i wonder if maybe you can just go through a few of the common categories of why spleens might be enlarged and then maybe just tell us why those categories exist and are distinct from one another. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think as we go through the different causes, we can then sort of relate them back. So this isn't going to be completely exhaustive, but I think generally speaking, it's helpful to think about, you know, what what's in the spleen and what does the spleen do? So the spleen is basically full of lots of different types of lymph- lymphocytes at various stages of differentiation. So if your lymphocytes are going bananas, you can get a big spleen. So lymphoma, very kind of common example. And you might get a lymphoma that is just affecting the spleen or you more, more commonly you'll get a lymphoma that affects the whole of your lymphoreticular endothelial system. So it would be associated with lymphadenopathy. So the spleen is an honorary lymph node. So anything that makes a lymph node big can make the spleen big. And that includes um, sort of primary problems with your lymphocytes. Your lymphocytes might be cancerous lymphoma or your lymphocytes might be reacting to an infection or to some other stimulating problem. So something like sarcoid. So you're then sort of thinking of your kind of um, multi-system disorders where you're going to get a lymphocyte response. So basically too many lymphocytes in your spleen, big spleen, could be cancer, could be something else stimulating it. Then you've got to think that the spleen is quite a nice place for hemopoiesis to happen. It happens in the fetus. It doesn't happen in health in, in adults, but it's the next best place after the bone marrow. So if either there's something going on in the bone marrow that the bone marrow can't exist there so you've got i don't know lots of fibrosis in the bone marrow um then the next place that the hemopoiesis is going to go is the spleen so that's going to be your kind of myelofibrosis situation which people i'm sure will recognize as one of the causes of a massive spleen but then also on the same theme it might not be that the bone marrow is full of something else but it might be just that the bone marrow can't do enough to keep up so that's going to be like your hemolytic anemias for example where you need to produce you know 10, 20, 100 times because it's being destroyed peripherally and your bone marrow just can't keep up. So your bone marrow is maximum capacity, so it looks for the next best place to dump some extra hemopoiesis, and that's your spleen. So you're going to get um, spenomegaly in those situations. And then you're kind of thinking of, well, what else is going on in the spleen that might make it big? Well, it's kind of plumbed into all of the abdominal vessels. I'm not a liver physician, as you'll find out very quickly. Um, but if you've got liver problems, you then get your portal pressure and your back pressure on the spleen. It's going to get congested and, and big. And those are the kind of things that I'll be thinking about um, when I'm thinking about someone with a big spleen. And that kind of just helps to guide you as well in terms of what else you're looking for on examination and other clues that might be pushing you in one direction or another, depending on what else you find or any other information that you get from the history. Yeah, absolutely. And so under one big umbrella is just hematological causes and that had more symptoms and probably more causes than any of the others so that's you know uh, one of the main sort of categories that i've put splenomegaly under and then congestive was the other as you mentioned and then the other one is in infective which is you know again why i mentioned about an infectious disease specialist but again that is a, a relatively uncommon cause and then below that i've got sort of relatively rare i don't know maybe rare to me because i don't see it susie but maybe you see it certainly more probably more than i do but inflammatory causes so autoimmune causes and then infiltration uh which it you know includes all the very rare stuff which will come on to uh, towards the end but again these are the types of patients that they like to bring out in paces so anything can come up but i guess just important to think about how to approach your station depending on your vignette as well. I guess we should also talk about the presenting symptoms because when our candidates walk into the bed space, they're going to say, this is Mr. or Mrs. Jones. This is their presenting symptom. So what type of symptoms do you think would raise a a flag for our listener in terms of thinking about each of those categories in, in turn? 
Absolutely. So, I mean, this is probably a little bit where life differs from the exam. So I think in the exam, if you're told that someone has got fevers, sweats and weight loss, you know, that's a clear signpost that somebody thinks the patient's got a haematological malignancy. I would love if patients with haematological malignancy presented with those features, um, you know, commonly, but usually when we see them in clinic, they haven't got that. If they're being admitted acutely to the ward, then 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 maybe. But just kind of bearing in mind that that's a sort of a, a code in a way. In terms of the actual spleen itself, usually big spleens are asymptomatic, but if you are going to get symptoms from a really big spleen, it's going to be symptoms like early satiety. The spleen obviously sits right behind the stomach, so as it gets bigger, it's going to squash the stomach, which means you can't eat very much because the stomach can't expand. And then you can get left upper quadrant pain if the spleen is enlarging very quickly, or uh, it's actually more common in terms of spleen pain to get that if the spleen is infarcting, which can occur um, if the spleen's getting big quickly. But generally speaking, most most spleens present in an asymptomatic way, but you've then got to be mindful of symptoms of the underlying cause. So say you're sort of your B symptoms if you're thinking about an aggressive high-grade lymphoma or some other um, types of hematological malignancy. And then, you know, we can talk more about symptoms of liver disease, symptoms of hemolytic anemia um, and, and all sorts of other things that might come up. Fantastic. Fine. So I think let's move into our examination of the patient in front of us. So we've talked about the vignettes. We've talked about the categories that we have to think about splenomegaly in the context of. But again, until you feel that spleen, that's probably the first time you're going to have to then sort of backtrack and think, well, which which bucket am I going to put my splenomegaly in? But we'll come to that at the end of the examination. So our listeners are going to approach the patient and then they're going to perform an end of the bed examination. So Susie, is there any, what sort of signs can our listeners expect to find at the end of the bed when, when they see these patients that they possibly may go on then to examine and find a large spleen? Sure. So again, it's going to completely, unfortunately, depend on the underlying cause. If you're looking at your hematological causes, you might notice that they're pale um, in association with being anemic. They might have petechiae or you know obvious bruising to to constitute a low platelet count i'd hope that patients that were properly pancytopenic that you could see the symptoms of the signs um would not be in a pacer station um but in theory you might see that and you're obviously not going to see very many signs in terms of a low white cell count so that's a bit more tricky um if you're looking at your liver disease patients although rare that you get a palpable spleen in liver disease you often get a radiologically enlarged spleen but rare to get palpable spleen in liver disease but you're going to get all of your your features of chronic liver disease that we probably don't need to go into now and then really just looking for um any other features you, know, you mentioned things like autoimmune diseases so that could be you know, joint swellings rashes um really there's there's no end to the things that you might see that that might be relevant yeah it's it's extremely hard to be specific which is why so many people find the station so difficult i guess the other end of the bed thing is if they're either sat up or laid down you may well see that they've just got quite a large abdomen and you you may see that there is a greater enlargement on the left upper quadrant, possibly. Oh, but again, that's only if it's uh, a significant swelling, either moderate or massive, probably. Absolutely. And in, in practice, I'm trying to think whether I've ever really seen that. Um, and usually when you get it, if you've got a really enormous spleen in someone that's cachectic, um, which again, you would be, it would be a quite unusual patient that was suitable to be in an examination in, in that situation. I mean, I have seen somebody present with new CML whose spleen was so big you actually couldn't feel the spleen because the spleen edge was in the right iliac fossa 
Um, and it was just like this patient had a really hard abdomen. You just thought, why is the abdomen so hard? And so, like, his white cell count is 300. That's probably why. Um, and he had CML that did not end well, as you could imagine. But yeah. So looking looking for the spleen on inspection is is very rare that you would that you would see that. Yeah. And then moving to the hands. Now, truthfully, I haven't found an awful lot to suggest you know, hard signs of pathology in the hands. We we talked about autoimmune causes and particularly things such as Felty syndrome, which I think can occasionally come up in paces, which uh, obviously you, you won't be able to see their white count, which is the other thing which is associated with Felty's. But if you do see signs of rheumatoid arthritis, then there's a possibility you may be finding the spleen. It's quite unusual to find rheumatoid in, a, in an abdominal station otherwise, isn't it? It would be un- unusual, but actually that's probably one of a small number of fairly good examples of a, someone with a stable spleen that would be suitable to come to a PACES examination where treatment wouldn't make the spleen go away, you know, depending on, on what was planned for that person and where they would have signs that would fit. So, yeah, I think definitely watch out for that. And then that's a, a beautiful finding as next you can put the two together and then you can ask for the full blood count that's going to clinch your diagnosis. So, yeah less common in the clinical practice or certainly for me um because they tend to go to rheumatology first but we do pick up the odd one uh, when they come to us with usually it's the neutropenia that prompts the hematology referral yeah absolutely and the only other thing which i have got down for the hands is, are the signs of chronic liver disease as as we've already mentioned so things like palmar erythema asterixis and clubbing so we can go through all the signs of liver disease but what I'm going to suggest to the listeners is if they haven't already gone back and listened to episode number 67 with consultant hepatologist Dr. Phil Berry that they go back and do that because that will detail all the pertinent signs of chronic liver disease, which are also relevant for this station. So that will just, we, we will touch on them as we go through. But if you want a comprehensive guide to chronic liver disease, then go back and listen to that one as well. So we talked about the hands uh, and then going up the arms, Susie. I mean, the only thing I've got is just evidence of bruising, which might be, I mean, due to deranged clotting, low platelets or, or and, th- and they can also be a result of chronic liver disease as well. I mean, I think it's fine to mention the bruising and to consider whether it's due to a low platelet count, but I would consider it due to a low platelet count rather than to a clotting problem because your coagulation system, except for a few very minor exceptions, notable but less relevant for paces, exceptions is not related to your blood cells, your hemopoiesis, your lymphoid system in any way, shape or form. Um, So yeah, if you see bruising, talk about platelets, but don't talk about coagulation per se. Fantastic. And then moving from the arms, we're going up to the face and neck and lymphadenopathy is something that's really important. So uh, Susie, where, where would you specifically examine a patient for lymph nodes? Yeah, so I think in the context of paces in the abdominal system, I think it's um, part of your basic examination would be to feel for cervical lymphadenopathy. You'll want to show that you're um, examining the anterior chain, the posterior chain. You're going up right behind the ears and you're coming across across the top of the clavicles as well. Of course, you're going to be thinking about your Verkhov's node in terms of your um, gastric uh, malignancies, but that will give you a good idea as to whether the patient has got you know widespread lymphadenopathy. For me, as a haematologist in clinic, almost every single new patient I see, I will examine their neck, their axillae and the groins. But I think in the setting of paces, as we've said, you don't know whether you're going to find a big spleen until you get there. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to do the 
um, cervical lymph nodes, do your abdominal examination. And then if you find a spleen, you can go back and do the axillary and the groins. And the way that I tend to examine the um, axillary is a bit like you would for a breast examination, although to be honest, I tend to do it with the patient lying down. I hold their arm, ask them to relax their arm into my arm and have a good rummage around um, on, on both sides. So that's that's what I would do as my sort of lymph node examination. Brilliant. And moving then from the, well, part of the face and neck, I guess, is looking into the eyes as well. And one question I had is uh, whether or not scleral jaundice is something which would be suggestive of a hemolytic anemia or whether that's something we would only associate with chronic liver disease. Yeah, so you you very much can see jaundice in people with hemolytic anemia. Um, I guess it's rare to see a biliary bin of, of over maybe 120, um, but, but definitely high enough to see clinical jaundice. Um, and although it doesn't affect the sclera, the other thing to bear in mind is that if you've got somebody with hemolytic anemia, they're also going to be anemic and a bit pale. And if you add the pallor of the anemia with even a bit of mild jaundice, people can look pretty yellow. Um, and certainly with, with some of my patients with autoimmune hemolytic anemia, you know, you can tell when you walk past them in the waiting room before you've even looked at their bloods, um, whether they've relapsed or, or not. So, yeah, clinical jaundice is definitely a thing um, in, in hemolytic anemia. Fantastic. And then moving down from the face and neck to the chest. Now, Susie, the only things I've got for the chest are things related to chronic liver disease. So we can signpost our listeners back again to episode number 67 with Dr. Phil Berry um, to look for those signs. But was there anything else in the chest before we come to examine the abdomen, which is which is pertinent from a hematological or, or spleen related perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the only only thing which hopefully is less relevant for the exam, but I'll mention for the sake of, of completeness, would be your patient that's got a high grade, usually lymphoma expanding rapidly and causing SVC obstruction, where you might get lots and lots of lymph nodes in the chest and a big spleen um, as part of it. Now, hopefully that patient is not going to be in the exam for everybody's sake, including the patients, um, but just for the for the sake of, of you know looking at the whole picture and from a, a, a clinical you know acute take presentation uh, as well it's important to to bear that in mind so then we get to the meat of the sandwich the main part of the examination which is examining the abdomen and this is going to be where our candidates can either make or break their station and so this is why it's so critically important that they get it right now we are going to focus very much on the spleen because that's obviously the topic of this episode but obviously it's important to go through the motions of your examination so you're going to palpate superficially for tenderness and then you're going to palpate more deeply for uh, masses and then you're going to go into your specific organomegaly assessment we went in detail through examining for hepatomegaly with dr berry as well so we're going to focus straight on the spleen susie uh, what are the best tips you can give our listeners as to um, the the best way for them to reliably detect uh, splenomegaly in a, in a patient which may be presented to them so I think the first thing is you've got to believe that there might be a spleen there, which might sound a bit silly, but I think it's very easy to go through the motions, isn't it? A feeling for organomegaly. And actually, if you're not really concentrating in your mind's eye and thinking, is there a spleen there? Is there not a spleen there? Then you very readily might miss it. You know, you'll read in the textbooks that, you know, it enlarges towards the umbilicus and that's the direction of travel as, as somebody breathes in, which is absolutely true. And I'm sure people will be aware that the sort of classic way for feeling for a 
spleen is to use the tips of your fingers starting right down in the in the right iliac fossa um, for those enormous spleens that we mentioned earlier on whereas if you start at the umbilicus you will miss them because you're already on top of the spleen at, at that point and, and paradoxically some of those patients are quite stable and might end up um, in the exam so starting right down in the right iliac fossa coming up diagonally and what you're doing is holding your hand still and asking the patient to take a deep breath in and it's the movement of the spleen down onto your fingers that tells you it's there there's no movement of your hand it's all the movement of the spleen as they breathe into your hand and then you're waiting for them to relax and then you're moving your hand up and you're doing that sequentially so you're going to do that initially when the patient is lying flat on their back and then you're going to do some sort of a roll to try and bring the spleen towards you a bit so some people will get the patient to, to roll sort of right over on their side um, some people will just put their hand lower than the ribs because if your hands are on the ribs you're not moving anything but just kind of putting a bit of pressure from from behind I tend to do a, a, a bit of half and half and half but you're just really encouraging that spleen to kind of fall downwards towards the middle of the abdomen so that you stand a better chance of feeling it the spleen feels really smooth like really smooth and it's really round I know you're supposed to feel a notch haven't felt a notch many times but in contrast to the liver where when you feel the liver I don't know how you feel but I tend to feel that the liver is a, a vertical wall coming towards my fingers whereas the spleen is very much a curved thing where sometimes you kind of feel it and you kind of scoop over it as you're feeling so again it's just really concentrating on what are you feeling they can be really um really tricky to feel sometimes even when you know that they're they're there yeah, absolutely. And you've, you've, you've put into words exactly something which I'd, you know, not even realized, but yeah, absolutely. When you do feel a spleen, it does sort of just, you, you almost sweep your hand almost over it. And that's why it's probably, that's why it's probably so easy for, uh, for it to be missed by so many, uh, unfortunate candidates or listeners who get it in the exam. Absolutely. And the minute that you've got a layer of subcutaneous fat there, it, it's, it can be very, very difficult to, to feel. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mentioned, we we've already gone through uh, parts of the palpation for the liver, but the the spleen, I think, it, it is just truly one uh, extremely difficult, and there is no uh, substitute for finding patients who have enlarged spleens in a ward environment in in hospital for your uh, revision. I mean, I guess the other thing is. If you're saying every 10th patient or so, what are the chances of finding a patient in a haematology clinic, Susie? Is, is there any value in our listeners trying to get into their local haematology clinic to see if they, you know, they might get lucky and be able to feel some spleens there? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And also for no reason other than to see lots of people examining spleens and looking for lymph nodes, because everyone does it slightly differently. And even though with lymph nodes, you kind of think, well, the lymph nodes are there or they're not, aren't they? But actually, sometimes lymphadenopathy can be a bit tricky as well. So I think, as always, the more practice, the better. The more people you see do it, the more you can um, know and understand. The vast majority of people that are referred to haematology clinic do not have palpable spleens. So they'll have like a 14 centimetre spleen on imaging and then you're kind of down there how how relevant is this path but if you've got a friendly hematologist that does a general hematology clinic or a benign clinic you know i know who my patients are that have got big spleens if someone emailed me i'd be like yeah this person's coming on this day come down have a feel um so yeah i think it's definitely worth um you know don't spend months and months doing it um but if you've got something that you can um approach it's definitely worth a worth a try especially if you've never felt one because once once you've felt one you kind of know what you're looking for but if you've never felt one it is quite difficult to visualize and you don't want the first time you feel one to be in the exam yeah absolutely you've you've 
taken the words right out of my mouth. And, and in fact, when I was at the, the Paces Ahead course uh, recently, one of the things which was became apparent is that, that they had so many patients there who had either rare signs or rare conditions. But it is one of those things that if you see it once, you will not forget it and you will then be able to do it again or detect the sign again in future or name that condition in future. So yeah, absolutely. That that does exist in your paces revision. If you see something once, you detect that sign once, your chances of being confident about it in the exam go go up tenfold. And also once you've felt one, you know what it feels like. And the problem sometimes having said that you've got to concentrate really hard is sometimes you can imagine spleens when they're not there. So again, if you know what one feels like, you're kind of a bit more likely to have the courage of your convictions. And then I think probably the last thing that I would say about examining a spleen is that although we're taught this meticulous going up in the diagonal with your fingertips, if you think you feel one, don't be afraid to spend an extra couple of seconds. I know time is tight, but an extra couple of seconds with your hand behind, just having a good poke around from all of the angles, just trying to get all the way around it. Bearing in mind that one of the features of a spleen is you can't get above it if you're worried about a big kidney as your differential, for example. So don't be worried about using the side of your hand like you would do for a liver. Don't worry about coming you know, right across the left um, side to have a, a good poke within the limits of the patient's comfort, of course. Um, but yeah, if you think it's there, just have a, an extra bit of a prod. That's what I would do in practice anyway. That might be different in the exam, but that's what, what I would do. I think within the limits of the patient's comfort is the, uh, is the buzz phrase there. And finally, moving to the legs of the patient. I mean, I, I didn't come up with a whole lot Susie the only thing I got was a possibly a vasculitic rash but even so that's just so non-specific isn't it I just don't think there's much to find in the legs no I agree I mean you might get edema in someone that's got bad liver failure isn't it but again nothing nothing much of, of too much interest I would say fantastic so that should really complete your examination and if you have detected a spleen then you'll be expected to try and put it into one of these buckets of hematological infiltrative congestive or uh, infective or inflammatory and Susie one of the things I came across doing my reading was this table uh, where where it had been divided in three columns with mild moderate and massive splenomegaly and I just I I honestly don't think it I actually found it that helpful because it 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 uh, shoeboxes things into categories which are sort of pretty arbitrary based on size and position of the spleen and i don't know really if it helps us diagnostically particularly but i wonder i wonder maybe it helps if the spleen is absolutely huge and is as you mentioned taking up the whole of the abdomen versus the mild and moderate which i think is just a bit more of a gray area but i'd, I'd appreciate your thoughts on that yeah i, I completely agree i mean i think you know, as a purist, I always much prefer to think of things as, as to how they've arisen rather than how big they are. Like, you know, with anemia, I would much rather think about not enough production, destruction, you know, rather than high MCV, low MCV, because it doesn't actually tell you anything about what is going on um, underneath it all. I think, as you say, the, the main thing that's useful is that actually, because there's only four or five things that can cause an absolutely enormous spleen, and then if you've got an enormous spleen, then you're kind of home and dry because it can only be one of a very small number of, of things. But I think for anything other than that, it's just really not that not that helpful. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess the other thing, which we've already put a lot of emphasis on feeling for lymph nodes. And, and when we talk about our causes of splenomegaly, I've got causes with nodes and then causes without nodes. And Susie, I sent you my list before uh, the record, but I'm I'm 
on tenterhooks as to whether or not the actual accuracy of my list is is true so i wonder i mean it could be a myth a myth busting a slight myth busting episode but i wonder maybe we can run through our hematological causes for with and without nodes and you can tell me whether or not it's true or not <laughs> definitely no and your list is, is spot on so don't worry it's all oh, good. good um <laughs> so the key here is a little bit going back to what we were saying about at the beginning why is the spleen big also the other thing i want to mention at this point just to put things into context is that when we're we're thinking about hematological causes and people quite like to put them in a bucket because it's like hematology and it's a weird thing that people don't like very much and there are just some diagnoses and we'll just learn those and then move on quickly before anyone asks us too much um but a little bit of knowledge is a powerful thing and within your hematological causes i really 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 urge people to distinguish between lymphoid and myeloid and you're thinking of lymphoid and myeloid in terms of lymphocytes and then your myelocytes so like your neutrophils obviously your most common but you shouldn't forget that your along with your neutrophils in your myeloid cells are your red cells and your platelets even though it's really counterintuitive people think about the white cells and then they think about red cells and platelets as three different blood cells but actually you've got two different types of blood cells you've got lymphoid and myeloid and then within your myeloid you're going to branch out into your neutrophils, your red cells and your platelets. If people think back to at medical school when we learned that horrendous diagram, or maybe we didn't learn it, but we just looked at it and turned the page um, of um, hemopoiesis, you know, your pluripotent stem cell at the top, your hematopoietic stem cell. And very early on, you divide out into your lymphoid and your myeloid. Your lymphoid just literally goes down into your B cells and your T cells, and your myeloid goes down into your erythrocytes, your granulocytes your megakaryocytes that become your platelets and it, it divides out that early so if you go back to your spleen your spleen with lymph nodes that is your lymphoid system so it might be a b cell problem it might be a t cell problem but it is a lymphoid problem if you remove things like infection which obviously in that context your spleen is behaving like an ordinary lymph node and anything that can cause lymphadenopathy can potentially make your spleen big as well but if you're thinking about sort of cancers and hematological problems lymphoid lymph nodes and big spleen so it's going to be your lymphoma it might be your ALL it might be your CLL they all go hand in hand and it just depends where the lymphocyte is when it runs into problems and where it likes to hang out when it's proliferating but your lymphocyte in various stages of development you can get splenomegaly with myeloid problems but when you get splenomegaly with myeloid problems it's either because you need too much myeloid and the bone marrow can't cope with it so that's your myeloproliferative disorders so we're going to set up some extra hemopoiesis in the spleen because we're being told to make loads and loads and loads of myeloid cells and the bone there's just not enough room in the bone marrow or it's because the bone marrow is full of something breast cancer whatever else and so your hemopoiesis your myelo poiesis is having to evacuate the bone marrow and set up shop somewhere else or it's because um you've got massive turnover of your myeloid cells your hemolytic anemia where your bone marrow is making lots and lots of red cells but there's just not enough because they're being destroyed peripherally and then you're going to pick up uh, more hemopoiesis in the spleen also partly in that context because your red cells are actually being destroyed in the spleen so the spleen is doing extra work and it's going to get a bit big uh, because of that, so it's a slightly hybrid example, um, but hopefully you can see where I'm coming from. So your lymph nodes plus a big spleen in the context of a hematological disorder is going to be a lymphoid problem, but your big spleen without lymph nodes, probably a myeloid disorder. Of course, it could be a lymphoid disorder where the lymph nodes just don't happen to be big, um, but that's uh, a little bit unfair. I think that would be unfair. 
and I think probably at this bit, what I'm going to have to do is to, in the preamble for the show, I'm going to have to say, I highly recommend before listening that you go back and look at your, <laughs> your blood cell family tree, so to speak, before we, uh, before you jump in, because otherwise people are just going to be very unhappy on their commutes <laughs> listening and then thinking, Oh my God, yeah. when was the last time I, li- I even thought about I a, a, a pluripotent stem cell? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So we're thinking about the hemolytic anemias. We're thinking about myeloproliferative diseases in that in the hematological causes without nodes. We obviously have covered hepatic congestive causes, covered off well much of episode sixty seven, and and if there are signs consistent with chronic liver disease, then you know, um, and I guess the other thing to say is that by far and away, if you if you palpate a spleen and you can't feel a liver, which is actually very more well, much more common because the liver actually shrinks and sort of shies away uh, from from where you would typically examine, you may be likely to find a spleen without any hepatomegalia. That would be you know well in keeping with chronic liver disease as well and portal hypertension. But then we get to another another one of our categorical buckets, Susie, which is infection. And I actually think probably I have felt more infected or spleens that are reactive to an infection than probably most of what we've spoken about so far, maybe with the exception of chronic liver disease. But I've definitely, the, the first time I've detected spleens has been majority of times, and these are just the ones that jump out to me, have been young patients with uh, EBV, with glandular fever. That's just something we've come across in same-day emergency or the medical take. But again, the infective, the infective causes are something that we definitely ought to have in our armory to be able to talk about. Absolutely. And, and that's where your history is going to come in more, isn't it? In terms of if people are having, um, you know, infective symptoms, I guess fevers and sweats can be a sign of hematological disease, but but also infection. The travel history is really important um, for me. And then I'm afraid, am I allowed to be rude to my infectious diseases um, colleagues? It basically just comes down to requesting a panel of tests irrespective of the information that, that you've got um so the things that we tend to look for as you say cmv ebv always think about things like leishmaniasis so i've diagnosed leishmaniasis in somebody that had only been to portugal once 40 years ago so you don't have to have a particularly exciting travel history to diagnose leishmaniasis um, he presented with hlh actually it was quite interesting and then things like brucellosis can do it and then you've got your old favorite um malaria um, where you then come into requesting your thick and thin films, um, but usually that's there's a little bit more to go on in terms of the the history and and suggestive symptoms and signs for for malaria. Listeners, I am delighted to welcome a brand new podcast partner, Scrubs in all caps S C R B S. This company is run by two GPs and they make awesome scrubs. I've been wearing mine for a couple of weeks now, and they absolutely strike the balance between being comfortable functional and appearing professional at work at a decent price and they're even more affordable when you use the discount code paces10 to get 10% off any order just head to scrubs.co.uk scrbs.co.uk and use the code paces10 for 10% off your order at the checkout 
Yeah, absolutely. And then we've got the inflammatory causes. We mentioned about felties at the start of the show with uh, rheumatoid changes in the hands, joint arthropathies as well. You can also get it with uh, things like lupus. So always think about SLE if there are you know, suggestive skin rashes that you've uh, found during the course of your examination as well. And then we get to the real fine, small print Susie, at the, uh, at the end, is the infiltrative causes. And you mentioned a couple of these as well as at the start, things like sarcoid, amyloidosis. I mean, are, are these uh, patients that fit in the category of, of stable, enlarged spleens, the types that would be able to come in for the exam? Um, probably. Well, your sarcoid may well do. Um, again, I'm not a respiratory physician and I would leave it to them to, to comment, but certainly, um, you know, some patients with sarcoid won't need treatment straight away. Um, if they've got a palpable spleen, they might be fair, fair game. Um, and of course you might get lymphadenopathy associated with that, um, as well. Your gauchers patients, um, can have quite big spleens. Um, they do get treated, but they may have a big spleen for, you know, a, a significant period of time they tend to be fairly well um so that would that would be um fair enough so yeah we we can see them the amyloids i think less so they tend to be pretty unwell by the time they finally get diagnosed late diagnosis is a massive issue for for them and they usually got heart failure and all sorts of other terrible things going on um so unlikely to see them but but not impossible yeah absolutely and so susie one of the things which i thought is well we, we we have already touched on it at the maybe at the start of the show but when these patients are referred to your clinic and you end up seeing them what what are the sorts of symptoms that they're usually uh that they usually report to you I, I mean i appreciate you said you know a lot of them are asymptomatic and found incidentally on imaging but do you ever get to tease out any of the you know, typical symptoms that are associated with patients who who have splenomegaly I think it all depends on the underlying cause. Um, I'm trying to think the last time I actually had someone with a big spleen where they had a satisfying logical explanation for the big spleen. Um, half the time they turn out to have liver disease, which is usually a case of trying to persuade the liver team that they've got liver disease. Um, I think it probably is a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier. You know, it, is it actually from the enlargement itself, such as the, the bloating or early society? Or is it actually related to the cytopenias that you know that are associated which i guess we have sort of already discussed as well yeah and and uh, you know most of the time if they have got symptoms it's going to be because of the underlying condition so it's going to be because of the you know rampant lymphoma that they've got or um any of the other things you know your your malaria patient we haven't talked about things like hlh because obviously that's going to happen much more acutely but but often those patients are are going to have you know, the, the spleen is going to be something you find rather than the presenting complaint um, in those sorts of conditions most most commonly. And and I think just one more bit on this before we then move on to our investigations and management is is the if we nip back quickly to the table of mild, moderate, and massive splenomegaly. Mm. So the the massive bit is the column which I most confidently remember because I think if it's massive, it's only a set few things. And the four that I have down, which I've seen consistently across, you know, a lot of the revision resources that I found are the hematological. So I've got the, but these are the myeloid causes. So you'd not expect them to have associated lymphadenopathy. It's myelofibrosis, CML, and then on the infective side, I've got malaria and then visceral leishmaniasis. And I, those are the ones which, by and large, I've I've come across. Is is that more or less concordant with with your your clinical experience? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just thinking about a time when we had a patient, she was referred with a big spleen, it was an inpatient, and they got referred to us because the radiology report from the CT said enormous splenomegaly query CML in a patient that had a completely normal full blood count, although probably a tiny bit thrombocytopenic because I had a massive spleen. Um, so just a reminder to everyone to put all the pieces together, you can't have CML with a normal full blood count. Um, and you, you're unlikely to have myelofibrosis with a normal full blood count as well. Your leishmaniasis should be pretty apparent clinically by the time you've got a massive spleen and the same with your malaria. So with those big causes or those causes of a very big spleen, there should be some very helpful clues along the way. And and I have to be honest, I think the the mild and moderate I find very difficult to tease out clinically. I think if you're I think if you're feeling it, it could be any of the ones that fit into either of those categories. And that is basically anything that we've mentioned that doesn't include the four <laughs> diagnoses that go in the massive category. I agree. And I also um I think you previously made the point that a big spleen had to be a small spleen at some point. So, you know, just because it's a cause of a massive doesn't mean it can't be a cause of a mild or a moderate. And also, you know, if you look at the things on the mild or the moderate, I've certainly seen EBV with a pretty sizable spleen. So although that goes down as mild, because it will be in most people, it doesn't mean it can't cause moderate um, splenomegaly. So it's, yeah, I think it's very difficult to um, uh, to be too clear about those. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so we're moving on to the investigations now. And so we are going to approach this again with a hematological lilt. And that is because we've already gone through the chronic liver disease workup in that episode. So you'll have to go to part two of our chronic liver disease, which is uh, episode 68. Susie, we're going to talk about working these patients up or the, the examiner discussion afterwards. So again, this is where pace becomes a bit contrived because rather than an incidental finding on imaging that then you go back and examine and you say, oh yes, they've got a big spleen. You're you're expected to, I guess the first thing would be confirm your suspicions with a form of imaging. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, ultrasound would be absolutely fine. It's actually um a, a bit easier to get a measurement on a on a spleen with an ultrasound and that would be our first port of call. You're practically speaking, you're gonna get a really good assessment of your liver on ultrasound. So um it, it's very helpful from that perspective arguably you want to know whether the patient's got lymphadenopathy because if you've not felt any clinically you're going to need to do some imaging to see if there's anything that you're not able to feel and if you have felt some clinically you're going to need to do some imaging to look at the extent of it so in many ways you could say well go straight to ct because you're going to get you know everything that, that you need but yeah you can argue it either way i don't think an examiner would be in a place to say that one was one was right and the other one was wrong to a degree depending on what what, what else you found and then your other investigations, I guess, are going to be looking for the underlying cause. And I guess part of that is, well, a, a critical part of that is your full blood count, where you're going to find all the, uh, you know, potentially a pancytopenia. But it could be, it could be any anything depending on what else you found in the examination. It could be everything and anything could be high or low, exactly. And I mean, starting with the platelet count, which you would expect to be low in someone with a big spleen. So if you want a nice, easy mark without having to worry um, about what you think you may or may not have found in terms of underlying cause, then, you know, a full blood count, because I would expect this patient to have a low platelet count because they've got a big spleen. The platelets get sequestered in the spleen. So irrespective of anything else that's going on, you would expect to get a low platelet count in sort of significant splenomegaly. And then, as you say, your full blood count is going to help you decide has the patient got hemolytic anemia? Has the patient got CML with a you know very high neutrophil count? Um, has the patient got a myeloproliferative disorder with a high hematocrit we talked about before or a high um, platelet count? 
all sorts of things that you're going to be able to tell from your um, from your full blood count. The one thing you cannot diagnose tr- diagnose from your full blood count is lymphoma. Just so you know. So with lymphoma, um, the point is that it's the lymph nodes that get enlarged rather than the circulating lymphocytes in the blood. You will be able to diagnose CLL from your blood test. Well, you're going to get an idea because you're going to get you're going to get a high lymphocyte count. And of course, the later stages in CLL, you can get um, you can get big lymph nodes and a, and a big spleen. But yeah, your full blood count is going to be really important. And then also you can say a full blood count and blood film. So without going into too much detail, there are certain telltale t- signs on a film for a myeloproliferative disorder. You can basically diagnose CML on a film because it's not mature neutrophils that you see. You see some lots of mature neutrophils, but you also see lots of precursors, which should not be in the peripheral blood. And that's a really classic finding again wary of asking for a blood film for lymphoma um because the lymph nodes should be where the abnormal lymphocytes are rather than in the blood a few exceptions to that as as always um but again cll you should see your characteristic small round lymphocytes with smear cells uh, on your blood film so yeah full blood count and blood film and there are lots of things that you can say from a hematological perspective you don't have to say them all um but just a couple of, of flavors of things that you might be looking for yeah i guess the other thing is inflammatory markers i mean you know we've talked about white cell count neutrophils and lymphocytes but a crp maybe an esr for infection or inflammation for those inflammatory or infective causes might be helpful at least uh because in the exam you're not going to know but it's going to be important from a uh, an investigation perspective to mention that absolutely yeah and and then in terms of your wider kind of spectrum of tests as you throw that net out um you're going to do your liver function looking for your liver which we probably don't need to go into too much detail about here but the really important thing from my perspective that you get on that blood test is the bilirubin which might throw you a bit of a line in terms of um, hemolytic anemia so i would just do a full hemolysis screen in everybody that comes with a slightly big spleen um so it's going to be your bilirubin your LDH, so non-specific marker of cell turnover, it's going to go up in hemolysis. Um, your haptoglobin, which is a very special protein whose job it is to scavenge free heme, which is what falls out of the red cell when it gets broken down. It's a very confusing one because you think it would go up if it's you know really important, but actually it goes down. You don't have much of it. It doesn't take much to saturate it. So haptoglobin is usually undetectable in hemolysis and, and all of those are biochemistry tests. And then you've got your um, your haematology test, which is going to be your reticulocytes are going to be the most important. That's your young red blood cells. So if your marrow is working well, you're making good red blood cells, but they're just being destroyed too quickly, irrespective of the reason any cause of hemolytic anemia. If your marrow is working well, your reticulocytes will go up in compensation. That just shows the marrow is working well, kicking out loads of red cells. And then your other haematology test is the DAT, which I know people love to talk about the DAT or the Coombs test, the direct anti-globulin, anti-globulin test. And that is part of your hemolysis screen. What it does not do is tell you whether the patient is hemolyzing. Um, but if the patient is hemolyzing, then it gives you a clue as to whether that hemolysis is immune or not immune. So you could have hemolysis, for example, because you've got someone with a really narrow aortic valve right in your uh, neck of the woods, Sam. Someone's got a really, really narrow aortic um, valve and they're hemolyzing through that just because the pressure is so high across the valve. The red cells are bursting as they go through. Your hemolysis markers will be exactly as we've said, high bilirubin, high LDH, low haptoglobin, high retics. But the DAT will be negative because there are no antibodies on those red cells. There's nothing to do with um, the immune system. But if you've got autoimmune hemolytic anemia, the mechanism is that you're getting antibodies sticking on the red cells, flagging them for destruction. And when you do your DAT, you're looking for antibodies on the surface of the red cells. 
So if your hemolysis screen is positive, you do a DAT as part of it. DAT is positive, then you're thinking it's an immune cause. If it's negative, you're thinking it's a non-immune cause. And also just to say one of my favourite facts is that 15% of hospital inpatients will have a positive DAT. If they're not hemolyzing, I do not care in the nicest possible way. <laughs> so you're allowed to have a positive DAT. The critical thing is whether you've got evidence of hemolysis. So that's your word of caution with the DAT. I know it's, sorry, that was a bit of a, a hairdryer moment of, of facts in your face. Uh, but that's the thing with the DAT is it's really helpful to decide the cause of hemolysis. But if someone is not hemolyzing, if it's positive, it's unlikely to be of too much relevance. Yeah. So critically, you've got to have biochemical evidence of hemolysis for a, a DAT or a Coombs test to even be relevant. Exactly. Exactly. And then also just talking about hemolysis tests and tests that we've already done, actually, is going to be your blood film, because in hemolytic anemia, your blood film is going to really help you to decide the cause of the hemolytic anemia. It'll certainly give you some really important clues. Yeah, fantastic. And then I guess the other thing is talking about other imaging, which is less specific for the spleen, but would help us in our diagnostic process for some of the causes we've talked about. And so something that is almost used as a, as a screening test is uh, a chest X-ray looking for bilateral hyalur lymphadenopathy for lymphoma. I mean, would, would you recommend that if, if you've got a patient with a large spleen and, and nodes, would you recommend that as, a, as something the candidates should mention? Um, I mean, practically speaking, I wouldn't because if I actually genuinely am worried someone's got lymphoma, they're going to get a CT scan in this day and age. I mean, your your chest x-ray might be useful in someone you think might have sarcoid. I guess a lot of patients, especially if they're coming in on the medical sake, are going to get a chest x-ray anyway. But if the examiner is asking for tests that are going to definitively help you move down one pathway or the other, chest x-ray is probably not top of my list. But, you know, you could mention if the patient has had a chest x-ray, I would look for bilateral hyaluronic lymphadenopathy if it's there on, on something that's already available. Again, it's not wrong to say it, but in practice, that's not what we would routinely do. Yeah. And and would that would that routinely be a just a full body CT or or how often do you use a PET CT in, in patients like this as well? Yeah, so we would usually start with a CT for sort of diagnostic purposes because your PET CT isn't actually, it doesn't tell you much about the lymph nodes. It just tells you whether they're hot or not. So it's definitely a very important part of staging once you've made a diagnosis or if you've got a patient that's got lots of lymph nodes and you're not really sure if they're reactive or like what's going on with them and you've got a kind of diagnostic dilemma in someone that's got lymphadenopathy, then you might do a PET at that point. And we're sort of using PET a lot more than, than you know we did 10 years ago. But CT would usually be the, the first port of call. And personally, I'm a fan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. I don't see the need to do the neck because you can examine that, but you'll see plenty of people requesting a neck chest, abdomen, pelvis, partly because once the patient's got lymphoma, you want to have a baseline to compare to in terms of response to treatment and things. So I sort of have a bit of sympathy for that. But as someone that doesn't treat lymphoma as part of my day job, uh, I don't tend to do the neck upfront unless I'm pretty concerned that, that that's definitely what they're going to have. And how relevant is something like a bone marrow aspirate and trephine? Or I, I mean, a lymph node biopsy for those patients, I guess, is very important because that's going to be absolutely di diagnostic. Yeah. But uh, I mean, these these sort of specialist tests, how, how relevant are they in, in our workup? Yeah, so we discussed this in our MDT today, this very question, actually, and I'm about to do um, a bone marrow biopsy on someone where it's almost certainly going to be normal, but they've got a big spleen and what else are you going to do? Um, so the, as we said, you know, with the myeloid causes of a big spleen, it's usually really obvious from the full blood count that they've got something myeloid going on because they've got something wrong with their red cells, their neutrophils or their, um, their platelets. Um, you can get caught out sometimes with the lymphoid ones if they don't happen to have big lymph nodes 
you could have a big spleen and you might be lucky enough to pick up just a few abnormal lymphocytes on your bone marrow to make a diagnosis um but it's pretty rare i don't think i've ever done a bone marrow biopsy in someone with a big spleen and it's made the diagnosis we would do it for the sake of completeness but um i think it's a common misconception amongst non-hematologists that the bone marrow is really really helpful um because it's looking for hematological disorders but actually it, it's rare that you you get information from the bone marrow that you didn't already have from the full blood count yeah I mean, it's probably just because we don't do them. Um, and occasionally when we get a haematology opinion, what sometimes in the plan is to do a bone marrow. And we think, oh, that's clever because we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Only you could do that. But also, and I know people don't like my um, sort of hemopoietic stem cell situation explanation, but actually because although you do have lymphoid cells in the bone marrow, but it's not their primary place of maturation and it's not where they live, it's not where they do their work. The bone marrow is the home of the myeloid system and the lymph node and the spleen is the home of the lymphoid system. So actually, if you've got a lymphoid problem, you're looking in a myeloid space. So you kind of almost have to think of haematology as two completely different systems, lymphoid and myeloid. And yes, there is a little bit of overlap, um, but, but not as much as people might think. Brilliant. Is, are there any other investigations in terms of a haematological diagnosis or have, have we pretty much exhausted our options? I mean, we've pretty much much done it. I mean, I, I do tend to send peripheral blood lympho, um, peripheral blood flow cytometry looking for a lymphoid clone, but that's kind of clutching at straws just because it's non-invasive. It's easy to do. Um, so you're looking for your kind of weird lymphomas with that. You would pick up CLL classically by doing that, but if they've got CLL, their lymphocyte count is high in their peripheral blood. So again, you would do it if you had a lead from your full blood count, but if you haven't got a lead from your full blood count, it's it's unlikely to yield anything of, of much help. You can get some very funny lymphomas that present with, with you know, very little by way of lymphadenopathy. And then the only thing that you're really left with, which was the discussion that we had today, was at what point do you actually do a spleen biopsy? Because you can. You might not want to, uh, but, but you can. So it's going to come with a really high bleeding risk, like a really high bleeding risk. So we would really reserve that for people who um, you know, have had everything else done and there's really clearly something very wrong. So a spleen that continues to enlarge on sequential imaging, systemic symptoms and where everything else that you've done is, is, is unhelpful. And, and not giving you an answer um but that's very much you know specialist hematology territory and i can certainly count on one hand the number of times i've seen that that done not something that we want to encourage people to be talking about in faces too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah brilliant we've we've exhausted hematology i think but we still it would still be probably be important to mention the other causes in terms of uh, investigations for chronic liver disease you can find all of those in that previous episode infection wise we've talked about thick and thin films of malaria if it's massive and we talked about visceral leishmaniasis the diagnostic investigation i have is actually from a bone marrow biopsy or one of them i found is either histology from a skin lesion or a bone marrow biopsy so either way you might be hitting two birds with one stone yeah, absolutely. You can also um, do serology these days for leishmaniasis. And certainly the case that I saw, the histopathologist was absolutely devastated because he didn't see it on the slide. So yeah, it, it was there when, when we went back. Um, but yeah, you can you can do serology as well, which is helpful in that, you know, you can do your brucellosis serology and, and all of that um, uh, as well um, in terms of non-invasive testing. So I tend to do that as my second line things might have a quick chat with an id physician tell them the travel history and anything else that i should be uh, so that they can sort of mention any weird and wonderful things that i might not have uh, have on my radar 
as well. But it's often, I guess, it's the way in, in many medical specialties, but it feels like particularly in haematology, it's the trade-off between the likelihood of getting an answer versus how invasive you have to be. So sometimes we do, we look for some quite rare things up front just because it stops you having to stick a big needle in someone's bone marrow. Um, and obviously a bone marrow biopsy before a spleen biopsy for, for sure. Yeah, brilliant. And I mean, the only other things I've got left are the inflammatory causes. I mean, pick your preferred autoimmune diagnosis and investigate with a with the appropriate autoimmune panel. You can go back to the uh, rheumatoid arthritis episode. You can go back to the ankylosing spondylitis episode and listen through those. But by and large, that's going to be an autoimmune panel. And I, I guess the only th- other thing, Susie, we haven't actually mentioned is is about the management of these patients. But I just think it is so uh, dependent on the clinical presentation. I think it is going to have to be almost a case of you suspect this is a hematological diagnosis you would ask for the advice of a, of a hematologist i don't think the expectation from paces is for you to know exactly how to manage these patients i think it, it probably would be sufficient to signpost to the appropriate team because you've found the, the the correct signs i completely agree you know you can't you can't give a treatment for splenomegaly there's no there's no treatment for the i mean it's a symptom basically isn't it and it's all about finding the underlying cause for sure and I think the other thing, just to go back to the inflammatory causes, is that rheumatologists may disagree. But from my perspective, you're not going to get a big spleen as your first presentation of rheumatoid or as, um, you know, SLE or maybe SLE because it's a funny one, isn't it? But for the vast majority, your, your ankylosing spondylitis, those other symptoms are going to be there. You, you might be the one that finds them, I suppose, if you've got a patient that isn't presenting in a kind of a typical way, but your splenomegaly is not going to be the only thing that's wrong with that person if the cause of it is your kind of your angst bond or, or your rheumatoid. And it's very rare that those spleens are, are that big with the exception of, of felties where they can be sort of pretty reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. And and completely, completely agree. But Susie, I think we've almost come to the end of our discussion on splenomegaly. Did you have any final thoughts or closing thoughts for our listeners in in this really, really difficult station? I don't think so. I think we've talked about it. I think just know that it is a a difficult topic. Try and gather the sort of basic principles and understand that sort of anything that you find might be relevant. Think about what's making the spleen big and hopefully that will help you to kind of um, bring your thoughts together. But yeah, it's a a tricky one in the exam and, and in real life. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be uh, thoroughly dusting off my pluripotent stem cell diagram <laughs> before I go back. I can find you a mouse mat if you want one. <laughs> Post it to me, Susie. <laughs> well, listeners, that brings us to the end of another episode. And that just leaves us to say a huge thank you to Dr. Susie Morton, consultant hematologist. And this time we've saved you from the uh, Taylor Swift quiz, Susie. We, we thought we'd spare it for you on this occasion. I think I'm not the only one that's glad about that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Susie, thank you so much for joining, joining me again. No problem. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. But listeners, that is just about all the time we've got for this week's show please don't forget you can like follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts please do get in touch you can do that through the usual means on the social media that's at prepaces podcast on twitter or via the website and if you really want to go above and beyond you can support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash prepaces podcast but for now we are just about out of time i've been dr sam williams thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the prepaces podcast <laughs>